0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Romans called The Progress of the Gospel. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter nine, verses one to five, as Dr. Neufeld presents to us a message entitled Christians and Jews.
1: There has been a long and tortured history between Christians and Jews. And that in some ways is to be expected and in other ways, it's most surprising. It's surprising because there is no group of people on earth that Christians have more in common with than with the people of Israel. We read the same book, and that's no small thing. Christians, like Jews, trace their heritage to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We, like they, are raised with the stories of Moses and Joshua, Samuel, David, and Daniel. Indeed, from the outset, Christians are taught that it is the God of Israel who is the one true God. What group of people on earth have we more in common with than with the people of Israel? Ours should be a close and lasting relationship. But the tortured history is not surprising. It is in fact to be expected. The difference between us is the person of Jesus. For Christians, he is not one of the characters in the Bible, but he is the image of the invisible God, and in Christ alone is the fulfillment of all things. And so we part company at the very point that, for us, is the only thing that ultimately matters. Over the years, mistrust between Christians and Jews has unfortunately marked the relationship. But during the Spanish Inquisition and then during the Nazi Holocaust, things reached a level that is simply inexcusable and overwhelmingly demonic. And now after all this tortured history, contemporary Christians might ask, how do we respond to Israel? There are some so-called Christian teachers who have now stated that the Jewish people do not need to repent and trust in Christ for salvation. These teachers say that for them— the covenant with Abraham and with Moses and David is enough. This, I think, is said because of the violence that has been perpetrated on them under the guise of evangelism. But others, myself included, say to this, that if we give up the heart of the gospel, we in effect deny Christ. And so how are we as Christians to think of Israel? Romans 9, 1 to 5 is a remarkable statement. Paul, the great missionary apostle, is both a Jew and at the same time a convert to Jesus. Let's hear him out. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, from that opening paragraph to all of Romans 9 to 11, in which Paul will discuss the sovereignty of God and the way in which God has caused the gospel to progress until it covers the earth, let's examine how he begins. He wants his hearers, who to the majority are Gentile Christians, he wants them to understand the relationship that they have with Israel. So let's listen with great interest by asking the first question on the minds of many Christians, both then and today. Has God rejected Israel because they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah? Is God done with Israel after the end of the Old Testament? And Paul's answer is clear and categorical. Absolutely not. So what we will learn is that Israel's refusal to accept the gospel brought the gospel to the Gentiles. That's true but also that God has determined that he will have great mercy on Israel in the future. Well then, what are we as Christians to make of this amazing phenomenon called the Jewish people? What do we make of these people who have lost their homeland in the year A.D. 70, wandered the earth with no homeland until 1948, have been persecuted for thousands of years, and yet they exist? What do we make of them? Please notice the first three verses of Romans 9 again. Paul begins by declaring and holding out for our observation how his conscience is engaged in this vital question. Indeed, he takes it one step further. It is not just his conscience that's engaged, but that his conscience speaks to him in the Holy Spirit. God, by his Holy Spirit, is using his conscience to speak to him and what he feels so deeply, and what the Holy Spirit is testifying, leaves Paul extremely emotional about this question. Look closely at what he says. First of all, notice the words of verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. When Paul thinks of Israel, his heart is filled with two things, sorrow and anguish. These words speak about sadness, anxiety, mental grief, even physical pain resulting from deep sorrowing. Paul needs to add the words great and unceasing. What he means to say is that sorrow overwhelms him so greatly that pain is almost unbearable, and it never goes away when he thinks about Israel. You know, I have a friend a couple of years ago lost his son in an accident, and I'll never forget as one day he described his grief. It was then two years after the accident, and he told me that there were times now when he didn't think about his son and the loss all the time. There were moments of relief of which he was grateful, but then just when he was thinking about something else from somewhere, as if from behind him, a place he had not noticed, a great wave of sorrow would just wash over him. He felt helpless against it, and he would find a place to be alone, and he would sit down, and he'd just begin to cry. Paul says, that's exactly how I'm feeling, not lying about this. My conscience wouldn't allow me to lie. But I live in grief over Israel's disobedience, her hardness to the person of Christ. It it overwhelms my soul. Now, this emotion isn't expressed by Paul alone. Listen to what the writer of Psalm 119 verse 136 expresses. He says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people, and he means the people of Israel, do not keep your law. Or listen to similar words from Jeremiah the prophet, the prophet who predicted that Jerusalem would be destroyed because of the sins of the Jewish people. He told the most horrible things that would happen. God's sword of vengeance would be outstretched over Jerusalem. And in response, listen to Jeremiah 9 verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. You see, what Jeremiah is saying is this. I have wept so much, I have no more water to run from my eyes. Or listen to Jesus himself as he looked upon the city that he loved, recorded in Matthew 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. So, in fact, Paul is not alone in weeping for the disobedience of Israel. That's recorded in both Testaments. Paul is describing that he is going through emotional and mental turmoil, for he knows that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that his kinsmen have rejected him. He's like someone driving and leading a convoy, which takes a particular turn in the road and then watches in horror, as most of the cars take the wrong turn on the road, a road that will lead to ruin. How should Paul respond to such emotional turmoil? Look again at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now that word cut off comes from a Greek word, anathema. He at times in grief would say, I would gladly spend eternity in hell if it meant that the Jewish people would come to Christ. Now what's going on here? How can someone even contemplate such a thought? Paul can't mean that he could pay for the sins of Israel by his own suffering. You know, Paul has a theology of the atonement, and it is the suffering of Christ alone that pays for the sins of others. No, Paul is not denying the gospel or the joy that he constantly preaches. You know, in many ways, this should be understood as the language of grief and the language of loss. You can't read the Bible any other way. You see, anti-Semitism or hatred of Jews is simply not possible for any follower of Jesus. But someone might say, well, is this love any different than we might have for any other lost people group? Well, in a sense, no, it's not. See, I remember reading about John Knox, who so loved his own people and was so moved by the plight of a lost Scotland that he prayed, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. And that's how Paul is praying. And some of you have prayed that way for your lost children. Parents have. Some of you prayed that way for your friends. Some of you have even prayed that way for your city or for your country. But there is something unique about the call of all Christian people to love the people of Israel. In verse four and five, Paul will give us eight reasons, eight, why he and all Christians have a special relationship of love with the people of Israel, a love that simply must not go away.
0: There is a special relationship between the Jewish people and the Christian. And when Dr. Neufeld returns, he'll provide eight reasons why all Christians are called to love the people of Israel. We wanted to let you know that over the next several months, Dr. Neufeld will be a primary speaker at a number of the Promise Keeper conferences across the country. Locations include Abbotsford, Ottawa, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Edmonton. So we want to encourage men to join us for these inspiring and challenging events. Make sure you get all the details and dates by checking out our events page at backtothebible.ca or calling us at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld.
1: I want to reread Romans 9, 4, and 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, from this passage, let me give eight reasons why all Christians are called upon to love the people of Israel. First, Israel is God's chosen people. Paul says, to them belong the adoption. That's the language of God choosing Israel out of all the nations of the earth to be his treasured possession. But what does that mean? It's clear as you read the Old Testament that the majority of the chosen people did not go to heaven. Moses said, to this day, God has not given you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that understands. Or listen to what Isaiah the prophet said about Israel, recorded in Isaiah 1021 to 22. He said, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. In other words, only a remnant of Israel would turn to God. The majority would break God's law and worship idols. That's the history of the First Testament. So then what does it mean to be the chosen people of God if, in fact, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily saved? And that's fascinating. Listen to what Paul teaches in Romans chapters 1 to 4, which you remember is the heart of the gospel or Christianity 101. Ready? Romans 3 verse 19. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable before God. You know, maybe we should memorize that verse. What the text says is that what God did in Israel has something to say about his dealings with the entire human race. Israel, the Jews, are placed on God's center stage in the center of the nation to show the entire earth what kind of a God exists and what this God wants and how we are to attain mercy. Israel is God's sacred lesson book for the whole world, and God keeps putting them on center stage. You know, I read an article some time ago that absolutely fascinated me. Since the beginning of the Nobel Prize, that is, in peace, in literature, in physics, in economics, and in medicine, from the early 20th century to the near present, eight Muslims have won that prize. Muslims make up 20% of the Earth's population, and during that same time, Jews made up 0.06% of the world's populations, and they had received 127 prizes. You know, what's going on? There are no doubt numerous factors in this, but God is determined to place Israel at the center of the nations so that through them, the whole earth might be held accountable to God. They will always be at the center. I think I could demonstrate that in a number of ways, but look at Paul's list. First of all, of all the nations in the world, God chooses them. Second, Israel alone has witnessed what we might call a theophany. Paul says, to them belong the glory. I know that individual people have received visions of God's glory, but the Jews are the only people group in the world who as an entire nation have seen God's glory. They saw it at Mount Sinai, and they saw it again at the dedication of the temple. No entire nation has ever had a revelation from God, but this nation has. Third, Israel is the only nation through whom the covenants of God have come to the human race. God made an agreement with a whole human race in a series of covenants. Through Abraham, he promised to bless the whole world. Through Moses, he established the law. Through David, he pronounced that his kingdom would one day rule the earth. The agreements God made with Israel are his picture of the agreements that he makes with the whole earth. Only Israel has just such a history. Fourth. Israel received God's moral standards for the human race. It is, of course, common sense that every nation thinks that its ways are right and that God approves of them. And so, for instance, in Canada, we talk about Canadian values, and we even speak about the world needing more of Canadian values. But hear me, no nation, including our own, or the U.S. to the south of us, or any other nation can claim righteousness. Only Israel has received God's standards for the nations in the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, which are the absolute standard for what morality looks like. Israel received a law that showed the whole earth what is right and what is wrong. Paul says, to them is the giving of the law. Fifth, Israel taught the world how God is to be approached. Paul calls this the worship. In the Old Testament, temple worship was both an elaborate and a detailed thing. In The center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, and surrounding that were sacrifices for sins and and the pouring out of blood. Can't worship God until the sin question is dealt with, and the Jews knew that. It's amazing how often people will say, I want to approach God on my terms and in my way. Israel showed us that God is approached in his way, on his terms, in which you and I must face the ugliness of our own sins and the frightening prospect of an altogether holy God and the need for blood to be shed so that sins can be forgiven. No other nation in the world gave us that, but the Jews did. Now, sixth, God has made unbreakable promises to Israel. Paul says, to them belong the promises. Now, it is true that Israel has inherited over 40 separate promises, and it's also true that these are actualized only by faith. And even though many did not have faith, nonetheless, all the promises of Christ came through the Jewish people. Seventh, the foundation for our own faith came through Abraham. To them, says Paul, belong the patriarchs, that is, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That is indeed the foundation for the entire life of faith. But there's one thing that Paul must add. You'll notice the second half of verse 5. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. See, the first thing you'll notice, of course, is that Jesus is called God over all. Now, it's not the first time that Paul calls Jesus that. Titus 2.13, he calls Jesus our great God and Savior. Peter does the same, calling Jesus our God and Savior in Second Peter 1 verse 1. So to give Jesus this title is, in fact, New Testament Christianity. Now, some time ago, after I had preached John 12, I had pointed out that when Isaiah saw God in the temple... According to John 12, it was Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity whom Isaiah saw. Now, this fellow that heard me was so angry with me, he wanted to point out that the Trinity, he said, was invented by the Roman Catholic Church. How silly. Peter, Paul, John, all call Jesus God, our great God, our great creator God, God the Son, who came from God the Father. No, this is not some story that was made up several hundred years after Christ, somehow elevating the status that he had. This is Christianity 101. This is the story of God entering the world as a man and dying on the cross for our sins. Now, I've pointed out seven reasons why Christians must love Israel. First, Israel was chosen by God. Second, Israel is the only nation on earth that God visited with corporate visions of his glory. Third, Israel is the only nation of God through whom God gave his covenants. Fourth, Israel alone received the law. Fifth, Israel taught the world how God was to be approached. Sixth, God made unbreakable promises to Israel that are still in effect. And seventh, the foundation of the Christian faith comes through Israel, and those seven reasons would be enough, but Paul's still not done. The final reason is this. We must love Israel is because when God stepped into the world, he came as a Jew, not as a German, not a Brit or a Chinese individual, or Korean or Russian or Japanese or any other nationality. He came as a Jew. Why? Because the Jews are God's lesson book to the nations. God has chosen the Jews as a centerpiece whereby he would teach all of this to us. See, when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, the Jews taught us the value of repentance. And when the angel of death passed over Israel, we learned the value of redemption. And when Israel passed through the Red Sea, we learned about salvation. And there is so much more. Israel has always been God's lesson book to the world. And so because of this, all Christians are called upon to esteem and to love Israel. That's why the prophet Zechariah told us of Israel, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye."
0: Thanks so much, John. Um, A thought. How do we approach something as difficult as a Jewish person in the need of salvation? What do we need to say to that person?
1: Yeah, I think that Christians need to be sensitive that in the past, especially because of the history of the Inquisition, that evangelism was used as a power play against Israel. And we need to understand that most Jewish people are very sensitive to this issue. It can seem to them like a presentation of the gospel is seen to disrespect Israel and the unique nature of the Jewish people. And and somehow we need to talk about that But I think we also need to talk about the reality that, the same reality that we present to everybody else, uh, that without faith in Christ, there is no hope of salvation from our sins. But I think we have a unique advantage with the, with the Jewish people, and that is we can, if we are careful, uh, work through a Bible study with them, texts of Scripture that we agree with together, perhaps Isaiah 53, and talk about uh, why that has to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus or, or to speak about other ways in which the Old Testament naturally leads uh, to the gospel. So we can help uh, Jewish people to feel that it's not that they are abandoning their Jewishness but we can call them to come home and to be completed as God would have them be.
0: Thanks so much, John. Join us again tomorrow for Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Many Christians today, especially young adults, are confused at what the Bible has to say about sexual identity. Others feel unprepared when asked about their beliefs in regards to homosexuality, transgenderism, and the like. The most important question we can ask ourselves in the midst of this sexual revolution we're in is, what does the Bible have to say about our sexuality and our identity? That's it. If we can answer that question clearly in a way that the next generation can understand and believe, well, we'll have set them up well in the midst of this broken world. Well, this fall, In Doubt is putting on its first In Doubt Live event, all about sexual identity. This event is dedicated on informing the next generation with clear biblical truth in regards to sexuality and identity. There's going to be a time of worship, keynote speakers, including Dr. John Neufeld of Back to the Bible Canada, leader of Ethos, Dave Johnson, and others, and a Q&A, so come with your questions. In Doubt Live, Sexual Identity is happening Thursday, October 27th at 6.30 p.m. at the Clova Theatre in Surrey. No cost, so head to live.indoubt.ca to find out more.